Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and thank you once again for joining me here tonight on Golf Talk Live. Uh, we're already mid-November, uh, getting close to our first uh, holiday coming up here uh, towards the end of the year, and that's, of course, Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks. And then a few weeks following that, of course, we'll be uh, dealing with Christmas and all of the festivities there. So I hope everybody's excited about that and gearing uh, up for the holidays. Um, just a couple of quick notes before we uh, get jumping on tonight's show. Uh, there will be a show, uh, or actually will be shows, uh, Golf Talk Live and the Women of Golf next week, um, but the week after, which of course is Thanksgiving, uh, I will not uh, be doing any, either one of the shows as we'll be, of course, observing that holiday. And then uh, we'll be bouncing right back for a few more shows uh, on both to end the season. Uh, and I don't know the date off the top of my head, but I think it's around the 20th is going to be the last day uh, on Golf Talk Live uh, thereabouts. And then we'll be taking an extended break, uh, as I normally do through the winter months, uh, just to allow me some opportunity to, to get uh, things rocking and rolling, if you will, uh, for both shows for the new year. So uh, very excited to have a little bit of a break coming up. Uh, obviously, I enjoy doing the programs, but it's nice to, to kind of uh, spend some family time and things like that. So, But thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, got a great uh, Coach's Corner coming up. I'm going to talk to you. Uh, about the uh, guys coming on the show here in just a second. I'll give you their info. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by uh, Charlie Fisher, who is the manager of channel sales and marketing for Golf Pride Grips. Uh, He's going to be joining me on the second half of the program, so I hope you'll stay tuned for that. Uh, But first off, uh, let me just thank the uh, sponsor of the Coach's Corner uh, this season here on Golf Talk Live, and that's golfswing.com. Tell you a little bit about them. Golfswing.com with their cutting-edge technology have teamed up alongside some of the best golf instructors, coaches, and swing gurus in the business. And together, they have created one of the best video teaching and training online platforms in golf. So if you're ready to break 100, 90, 80, or even 70, then you want to join their online video academy and learn from some of the best. And remember to enter promo code GOLFTALKLIVE at checkout to receive 50% off the subscription price. So join today, watch, practice, and improve your game. Thanks again to the folks at GolfSwing.com. All right, we've got uh, two great guys, actually two Johns on the show tonight once again. Uh, first up is John Decker. He's a PJ instructor with GolfSwing.com and a motivational speaker. He's also the former teaching professional at the New Albany Country Club, uh, 2015 Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. Uh, prior to that, he was a head instructor at uh, the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando, uh, where he worked under top 100 instructors Fred Griffin and the late Phil Rogers. Uh, also is the author of the book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying uh, God Through the Game, which has also an accompanying Bible study. Second up uh, is John Hughes, uh, PJ Master Professional and the president of the North Florida PJ section. Uh, he was the 2013 PJ of America's Horton Smith Award recipient, and he is one of the top 25 instructors uh, for Golf Tips magazine. So uh, guys, uh, John and John, welcome to uh, Golf Talk Live. 
Uh, Ted. Thank you, Ted. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Um, all right. Uh, as I told you guys, and I'm just to keep everything uh, sort of square here, I'll let the folks know as well. Uh, obviously, I've got two Johns on the program. Uh, to keep it square, I'm going to call uh, John Decker, John D, and John Hughes, John H, just so everybody knows uh, who the order is going to be. So, John D, I'm going to start with you. And uh, this is a, some questions actually I put to the guys uh, last week, but I wanted to, to run them again, or some of them again anyways, this week, uh, just to get your input. Uh, it's always good to have uh, some well-rounded discussion here on the panel, and I wanted to get some thoughts here. So, John D, I'm going to start with you. And, and this is something that I've talked with not only a number of my students, but just general folks as well that are involved in golf, not necessarily everyone that I work with, but just some other people uh, kind of getting their thoughts on, on some things. And so I put some questions together to the panel last week, and I'm going to give them again to you guys this week. So John uh, D., uh, despite taking uh, multiple lessons, golfers still seem to be struggling. Why do you think so many fall into that category? What do you think some of the reasons, despite getting some good quality lessons, many golfers still seem to struggle with their golf game? That's a great question, Ted. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on the show. And, John, I am really uh, enjoy uh, listening to you and, and going to enjoy being on the show with you tonight. Um, one of the things that students oft, often face when they're taking multiple lessons is when they get out on the golf course, unfortunately, they're still in that lesson mode. Um, you know, when you're taking a lesson, um, unless it's a playing lesson, uh, you're going to be working on a lot of mechanical things where you're not going to be in your subconscious state. And anytime you have to consciously learn something that's new or do something that's new, it's more difficult, whether you're, it's a, you know, learning to use the computer for the first time or play, play the game of golf. Um, if you have to think about it, uh, it becomes more difficult. And the golf swing from start to finish happens in one second. So if you're adding extra thoughts in there, you start, uh, you stop at, uh, losing, or you, or you start losing focus on what your your main objective is, and that's to, to get the ball in the hole in as few strokes as possible. And the best players in the world, I've always said that whoever wins the tournament, they're not thinking about anything but ball and target. I mean, they are they are focused on their target. They are playing in their subconscious state. And the guys who are missing their cut, who are not playing well. Um, they're dealing with frustration. Obviously, maybe things aren't going well. They're hitting poor shots. They start reverting to their swing mechanics. And we've seen the best players in the world. I mean, look at what Tiger Woods did when he was going through. He was playing at a very high level for many, many years. He started changing his teachers. Uh, you know, he went to two or three different teachers within about a five-year span. And all of a sudden, his game went off. When he got back to just right. doing and using his God-given ability – uh, now look where he is. He was winning the Masters. And, you know, he's won already this year, and I'm sure he's going to win again in the future. So, again, I believe the, the mind is very powerful. If you're thinking about what you're doing, you're usually not going to be very effective. Right. Well said. And, and I couldn't agree 100% more. I think there's a lot of uh, or too much thinking going on. John, what are your thoughts, uh, John H., that is, um, on the same question here? You know, we've got uh, folks signing up for, for lessons, coming to – uh, to you know, folks like you and 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 John, the other John and myself, um, but yet they're still having difficulties with their game. Um, I'm sure you agree a lot with with what John has already said, but um, I'm sure you have some things maybe you might want to add. 
Uh, I, I do agree with John, and thanks again, Ted, for having me on. John, I'm looking forward to the discussion, as we always do. Uh, I'm going to take it, just peel the onion layers back one more. Uh, most people go into taking a lesson with all good intentions, but then realize there's no panacea for what they're looking for. It does take a little bit of effort. It does take a little bit of work. For those people who are willing to make that effort, I agree with John. Sometimes you're just too stuck in a conscious mechanical mode on the golf course, which means you haven't put in enough repetitions and time of some quality. And if you've got some patience with that, it'll come along. For the people who take the lesson and go, wow, I wasn't expecting this. From a really good instructor, they can give you something that will get you by, but they're also giving you something that you're going to need to do so it's sustainable, and it's where that sustainability drops off after the lesson, which frustrates people, which keeps their scores exactly where they are. They're repeating exactly what they were doing prior to taking the lesson. Again, with all great intentions, they're going for the right reason. The ones that are willing to step off the ledge, they just need a few more reps. They need, a, they need to test it and simulate it in real-time conditions after all those reps. And for the ones who aren't willing to step off that ledge, I would say take a risk. This is a very small risk in comparison to some of the other risks you take outside of golf taking a little bit of time, devoting a little bit of dedication to what you're doing and some discipline, it's not going to harm you. It's actually going to do good long-term. Yeah, well said, John. You know, I think a lot of it is, and, you know, we've heard this expression before, paralysis by analysis. And I think, you know, um, my my special guest last week was uh, David Breslow, who, of course, is a mental golf coach. He's been on the Golf Channel over the years, uh, and he's – you know, put together a, a very interesting program, which actually I'm uh, looking at right now. And, you know, he talks about, and, and I'm just using sort of some generalizations here, but he talks about how really um, there are really two areas, if you will, of the mind. One is, uh, and he uses, a, a, I guess, a, a very interesting analogy, but he talks about uh, circle one and circle two. And circle one, he, he um, references the fact that circle one is sort of everything that we know, everything that we've learned, uh, our trials and tribulations, if you will, and circle two is the things that we want. So in other words, you know, we, obviously we want to succeed on the golf course. We want to play our best round. And most people, uh, even some of the best players in the world, have fallen into that um, circle one category that when they're out in the golf course, they're thinking about all these other things. So essentially that's, you know, what really what you guys are talking about. And it's a very interesting way to, to look at things because if you if you watch most people, you know, we always hear this expression, you know, how if, if I could take my range game to the golf course, I'd be all right. But for some reason, you know, everything seems to be firing all, all cylinders when I'm out practicing uh, on the range. But then when I step up to that first tee, I start having all kinds of, of anxiety uh, problems and things like that. And a lot of it is, is because they're not taking the range game. They're actually taking all of the baggage, if you will, and all the the, the mental cues that they've been working on and so forth uh, with them out in the golf course and actually causes a lot of confusion. So this is something that a lot of people have to really work on. It's not just about, you know, becoming a better ball striker. It's also about understanding uh, the mental side of the game, which is uh, equally, if not more important than even the physical side. Um, but great answers, guys. 
Um, John H., I want to go to you. Uh, I know we've talked about this before uh, on on number of shows, but I think it's something that really needs to, uh, uh, you know, to be examined a little bit further. You know, there's endless uh, YouTube videos, uh, things on biomechanics, swing theories. Uh, they're they're virtually everywhere you look. Uh, is this just is a lot of it just a lot of hype that causes more confusion and frustration? Do you think for the average golfer? Uh, and how do we help golfers sort of decipher? Uh, through all of the bombardment, if you will, through social media and other avenues, and also even some of the different swing theories. There's a lot out there. As we all know, one size doesn't fit all. Um, how do we help golfers sort of overcome some of that, uh, you know, bombardment of uh, information? Well, I'm just as guilty as the next guy of contributing to the, some of that bombardment and with all respect to everybody who does participate in that, I think what we're doing as instructors is with all good intention, the right thing to do. Uh, we're marketing ourselves. We're, we're giving suggestions to people as to what they could do to help themselves. Most people go on YouTube or any other social media platform looking for assistance they don't necessarily know what the causation of their issues are. And without understanding right. the causation, it's difficult. I mean, you're literally grabbing at straws to to find the right video, the right drill, the right tip, the right person to uh, actually get it. Uh, you may watch the same tip from 15 different people and just not get it. And that 16th person, ooh, I, I get it, but it still may not be the fix to the causation. Uh, having someone look at your swing in person or by video, sending a video to me or John or any of the host of other people who accept video lessons, so we can actually look at it and provide you a diagnosis. I do, I do this with my clients. I know they're going to stray to the Internet. I know they're going to stray to YouTube. And I tell them right off the bat, if you're going to stray, look for these things because this is your causation. And if you find anything good that we're not doing, you need to let me know. It's your responsibility to go, wow, I saw this. It fits right into my causation, and I've been doing it, and it's been working. You owe that to your instructor. We don't know it all, and we certainly can't look at the millions of videos online. I mean, I'd, I'd lose my house if I did that. But <laughs> if you're looking at causation and understanding your causation and then being able to go in and filter what you need based on that, it's a more effective way of assisting yourself. If you're just going to consume information to consume information, you're just going to continue to pile on to the, not the frustration so much as the uh, disorganization of what you're trying to accomplish, and that's to sustainably improve yourself, not just give you a quick fix. They don't work. When the Band-Aid gets wet, it falls off. And that's what a lot of these videos do to people because they don't understand it's not a Band-Aid they need. They may need something else. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh, John D. John H. made some very interesting observations here. And, and obviously, you know, we all enjoy um, participating in uh, online video instructions and so on and so forth. And I think it is an important piece uh, of the puzzle, if you will, for improvement. Uh, but as John uh, just alluded to, you know, if the student doesn't understand 
the cause uh, or the root problem that they're having, then they're just sort of uh, flagrantly, if you will, looking at what they potentially think might be a solution for them and causing further confusion. So what are your thoughts on that? Are, are we being bombarded, do you think, a little bit? Or, or should I say uh, the golfing community with a lot of information? And do you agree with what John just said that uh, – that you know, having an understanding of, of what some of the causes or some of the issues are first before you start to investigate. I think that John did a great job of explaining um, and saying a lot of what what I will what I'm going to say, and that is, uh, I'm as, I, I have uh, you know with golfing.com, I have a, about 300 videos, uh, and then I have a, another couple hundred on YouTube that I've done, and not all of them are golf. Some of them are you know with my book and stuff like that. But, it, you know, it's important as a golf professional um, for us to market um, ourselves because we are trying to, uh, you know, grow the game of golf. And so uh, in this world, if you're not, if you're not doing that, uh, you're, you're going to be losing customers. And so that's important. So I think that, that aspect is important. I agree 100%. It does you no good to watch a video if you don't know what the problem is, you first must address the, the problem. Once you ha- know the problem, and the only way that you're going to know the problem is through the trained eyes of a PGA golf professional, in my opinion. Uh, the average person who is on the golf course, they can't look at golf on television and say, oh, I'm doing, I need to do this. And, and, I'm do- and in reality, what they're trying to do in copying a tour player is not going to be what they they need to um, do. The biggest mistake that most people do is they try to copy the tour player's swing. And what I want most of my students to do is is copy the tour player's setup. It does you no good to to try to uh, do all those things if you're not set up properly. So that's that's an example of being of going to a professional uh, and 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 understanding. You know, maybe you have a poor grip, or maybe you stand too close to the ball, too far from the ball, whatever it is. Then go out and use the search engines of on the YouTube and and GolfSwing.com and all the the platforms that are out there, or read the articles in the magazines. And if they specifically address that problem, then you should pay attention. If it doesn't address that problem, you're probably better served to not bring it up. Then, if when you see your professional again, say, "Hey, I saw this video. Show them the video." You know, I have no problem if a student comes to me shows me a video of something they've watched, and I'll tell them within five seconds, yes or no, you know, that's good for you or that's not good for you. So um, the videos, I think, are a great way for me as a golf professional to reinforce my lesson. So after every lesson, I say, hey, go watch this video I did, you know, a year ago on whatever, and then the student can go watch that, and it's a great follow-up to their lesson. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think it, it's important that we find balance in anything that we do, um, regardless of whether it's golf or, or life in general. And I think that by understanding um, some of the issues that we're faced with out in the golf course, um, and then, you know, and but they need to be clearly defined first. You can't just sort of, well, I think this is the problem. I think this is a discussion that, you know, as you just pointed out, uh, John, with uh, your student is, that discussion needs to happen first. You know, here are some issues, here are some things that you're struggling with. Um, obviously, if you've got uh, videos of your own uh, that you can uh, direct them to, to to give them examples of what you're talking about, 
Uh, obviously, that's, I think, in the forefront. But if they happen to be searching around on their own, uh, we want to give them a direction of what they should be looking at and what they should be looking for so that they're not just, uh, again, sort of grabbing anything willy-nilly and, and just sort of watching things for the sake of it and then, you know, out of confusion. And I think that it's good, uh, as you pointed out, to have them, you know, the next time they come in for a lesson, you know, maybe show an example or two of what they have looked at and then have a discussion um, as to, as you pointed out, whether it's something that will help their game and if not, why it won't help their game and or where it's going to uh, create some difficulties for them. So they have a clear understanding and it's not just a matter of, you know, us sort of saying, well, no, you don't want to watch that video there. They need to understand why it's not going to help their game because otherwise then, you know, that sort of beast skepticism sort of comes in. They kind of wonder, well, why don't you want me to watch another person's video? Uh, it's not that it's not a good video. It just may not be what's best suited for them. Uh, John D., I'm going to come back to you again, uh, so take a deep breath. And, and this one here, again, I know these questions, some of them we've we've talked about before, but I think people really need it, and especially as we get into holidays uh, and people have a little bit of family time and maybe have some opportunities to get out and they're not working and they just want to go out and relax, maybe they're going to think about heading to the golf course, whether it's to play around or it's just to even work on their game. Um, these are things that I think that they really need to give pause to. Uh, and this one here is realistically how much time uh, should be spent practicing if golfers really expect to improve. Uh, or is it, and it's really a two-part question, or is it a matter of understanding what really causes some of their difficulties, like me mental inefficiency? Not for John well, D. Well, the amount of time, um, you know, the more time that you can do something, the more proficient you're going to be at it. So, you know, it would be very, you know, I do not know how to play the piano. So if I took piano lessons and, and I told the teacher, I'm going to spend five minutes a week working on the little drills and exercises that you've given me, you know, how good am I going to be? And the teacher's probably going to laugh and say, you're probably not going to be much better than you are right now. So um, obviously right. for me to prove, I've got to put in the work and put in the time. And so, and there's a lot of different ways. I think one of the biggest mistakes that, I, that people make, and this is something, you know, living up here in Ohio, I have to sell a lot to, to my students, is you don't have to be at the driving range to work on your golf game. You can work on your game indoors. You can work on your golf fitness. You know, there's, if it's a rainy day and you can't golf or you're, you know, you've got uh, the honey-do list is really long and you're not able to, to get to the golf course, there are things that you can do, exercises, there's uh, swing, you know, the orange whip and balance drills and things like that that you can do on a regular basis. You'll be amazed simply standing in front of a mirror and working on your setup. All these things uh, can, can help you become a better player that don't require a tremendous amount of time because time is such a precious commodity. It, it would be great if we all had, you know, four hours a day uh, to dedicate to practice and play. Most people, if they can get 30 minutes uh, a couple of times a week, you know, are going to do well. So, obviously, the more you can do it, the, the better you're going, you're going to be about it. And then the second part of your question, I'm sorry, Ted, was the, the follow-up. Uh, mental in inefficiency. Yeah, mental inefficiencies. You know, and what I mean by that is, you know, not, I'm not trying to suggest that that means that they're stupid. But I think that a lot of people underestimate, as I pointed out a little while ago, the mental side of the game, they don't understand the importance of, of your mental capacity what, yeah. and how it affects you on the golf course. Talk a little bit about that. 
Okay, the, the best way for the average, you know, golfer and the listener out there, here's what, what you should do. The next time you play golf, you need to count your, your fairways that you hit. You need to count your greens and regulation. You need to count your putts. You need to count the, you know, up and down percentage and start looking and breaking your game down just like you would break your business down, just like you would look at your bank account and start looking at where am I wasting my shots. And a lot of times that will help address uh, a lot of the mental issues um, that I think that, that students struggle with because the majority of times when it comes to the mental side that I see is people will tell me, I need to do this. I need to work on my driver because I want to hit my driver farther when they're not a very good putter. And so they don't really have those kind of, of uh, you know, I guess that they don't have that the, the stat to go by to really understand that. So I think that's important as well because if you're working on the right things, then you're, you're obviously going to be, in a, I think, on the golf course, going to be in a better frame of mind. Right. Well said. Um, John H., uh, your thoughts on, on these questions, you know, first starting with, uh, of course, practice. Uh, you know, practice certainly uh, doesn't necessarily make, uh, make you perfect, uh, but obviously it is, as John pointed out, it's going to make you a better player if you're out there working on the things that you need to work on. Um, and also, um, you know, touching on mental inefficiencies, again, just to clarify, uh, you know, a lot of times the folks underestimate how important the mental game really is. Your thoughts? Um, and the initial question was addressed to like winter and, and holidays and such. And uh, I just contributed stuff in the golf tips that was put out uh, through email and socially the, the past 48 hours, just about that. And I'm basically quoted as saying, Hey, I, I get it. Five minutes isn't going to do you any good. I totally agree with John, but five minutes is better than zero minutes. If you know what you're working on. And John brought up great points, standing in front of a mirror, working on your setup. Uh, within the article uh, or the little uh, tidbit I gave was using isometric drills to replicate what you want your impact position to feel like or what you want the top of your swing to feel like. Those things you can do indoors, those things you can do five minutes away from the family while the turkey is basting kind of deal. You, can, you don't need the range. I totally 100% agree with that. But you do need time, and time is our most precious resource. If you really examine the time that you have at your fingertips, there's five minutes, ten minutes here or there that can add up to, say, a half hour to an hour within a day, where if you spent some diligent time with the difference in what you're doing versus what you want to do. It, it, it will make a big impact. It will, it will sustain improvement through the, the dead of winter. From a, a mental capacity standpoint of view, having the courage to just go ahead and do what I just said takes a lot of mental fortitude. A lot of people just don't believe, hey, five minutes of isometrics, that's, that's not going to help me. Yes, it will. And that's a mental block. It, it's not anything more than you flipping the coin to the other side and saying, you know what, I can do this. When you look at all the world's best, at some point in their career, young or old, and or now, they do these kinds of things. From a mental standpoint of view during the winter, why not play some holes in your head? Why not uh, 
get on a, a simulator somewhere and try to test your skills that way, or even uh, a video game, you're going to be very surprised at your aggressive or conservative nature and how you play these things as it compares to what you do on the golf course. There's not going to be too big of a difference. If you're aggressive on the golf course, you're going to be ultra-aggressive with the simulations or the video games. If you're conservative on the golf course, you're probably going to get a little maybe aggressive, but when things go wrong, you'll eventually go the opposite way to ultra-conservative. And when you start realizing and recognizing, hey, these are my trends, along with the stats, along with some other things, you can literally start breaking old habits, creating new ones that can replace the old. The mindset is very simple, and I'll sum it up this way. Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. And if your practice, whether it's mental, physical, or both, is formulated, there's a purpose to it all, there's a reason for your, a method to your madness, per se, the permanency you're desiring, which is the improved skill level, will come. You just have to have the patience through those doldrums of winter to realize, hey, I can get something done, even though I can't go to the golf course. Yeah, you know, uh, again, great answer. Um, you know, I think that for, you know, as I said before, I think for most people, I think they grossly underestimate the importance um, of the mental game first and foremost. And also they underestimate the value of good practice sessions. And again, you know, whether as, as John D pointed out, whether you're going to uh, driving range or whether you're doing something at home, uh, depending on your schedule, as long as you're putting in, um, you know, not just the effort. I mean, obviously you have to be practicing with a purpose. You need to have, specific things that are, are proven to be successful um, that you're working on, not just, you know, again, sort of something willy-nilly, but you want to make sure that whatever it is you're doing, um, you know, is going to give you um, the ability to remember uh, whatever drill it is that you're doing, that you're going to be able to apply it to um, various uh, components of your game um, you know, whether it's working on the fundamentals uh, or, or working on uh, your putting or what have you, I think when you put in that time and effort, um, you can't help but see um, some positive results down the road. And I think that a lot of people underestimate that. And they think that, well, you know, I've got to go and spend an hour at the range. No, you can, in, in very, very short time, certainly not five minutes, uh, but certainly five minutes is better than nothing. But you can 15, 20 minutes, uh, I think you can, uh, put something together. And if you do that on a fairly regular basis, you know, you can spend 15, 20 minutes a day. Um, most people would have that kind of time. You don't even have to leave the comfort of your home. And obviously, ultimately, you want to be able to put some of those things in practice when you get to the range. But if you're not able to do that on a frequent basis, then by all means, there's a lot of great drills and a lot of great things, as, as both of you have pointed out, um, that we can do at home or, or even when we're on the road, if we're you know, in, in uh, a business that takes us on the road a lot, you can do that in your hotel room. So there's really no excuse um, um, to be doing that. John H., I'm going to come back to you uh, for this question as, uh, that we've got here, and, and John. And really, um, guys, this is a, you know, something that I really thought about. Somebody mentioned this actually to me a while back, and I've been meaning to ask it, and, 
and again, I, I brought it to the guys last week, and I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, and, and this is really an industry question. Um, you know, a lot of time is spent, I think, initiating uh, junior clinics, uh, different junior programs, uh, and really geared to fostering the next generation of golfers. And I think that's great. I think that is important. But there are millions of golfers who are already playing that are um, maybe some middle-aged and some a little bit older uh, that have been playing for years. Are we shifting too much of our focus to the next generation? Uh, and, and essentially, are we focusing all of our efforts in that one gener uh, direction, excuse me, and sort of not spending time as much as we should with some of the people that are already in the game. What are your thoughts there, John? Great question. It was something that was discussed at the PGA's national annual meeting last week, which I was able to attend as president of the section. Um, it was touched upon not quite in as direct a way as, as you posed it, but it was touched upon from the standpoint of view of keeping people engaged. How, how do we keep people engaged? I think what you're talking about is the outward uh, and marketing efforts of not only the PGA, but a lot of different organizations, National Golf Foundation to name one, that are trying to replace the golfers who are obviously going to be gone. Um, I'm in the baby boomer, the very tail end of the baby boomers. And, and as we can't play anymore or we passed away, is there someone there to take our place? And I think that's why you mm. see the big efforts and, and you make the comment and other people have made the comment, hey, are we putting too much effort into that? And I would say the answer to that is no. However, have we lost sight of our core golfers? I think what we do as a golf industry isn't necessarily forget our core golfers. I think we assume the core golfers will come along for the ride. That Whatever we offer them, they're going to go, great, that's fantastic, and they ride along. Um, one, of the, one of the great examples is top golf. Early mm -hmm. on, if you're a core golfer, it, that was taboo. It, you, that's not golf. That's a game. Well, you know, five, six, ten years later, you're starting to see more core golfers go to top golf because there is some legitimacy to it. It's fun. And that mm -hmm. really is the missing ingredient when it comes to engaging new or core. What are we doing as an industry to make this fun for people? What are we doing out the proverbial overused term outside the box to tell the core golfer it's okay to go to top golf and score as many points as you can. It's a different form of golf, but it's still golf. It's still a ball. It's still a club. You still have to take a swing. I think the more we do these kinds of efforts that are mutual, that can tag along the core to the new and the new to the core, it's, it's going to make things better for everybody because at some point when you were a new golfer, there was a core golfer who sort of took you under their wing, male or female, old or young, and they basically said, hey, Ted, John, let me show you this, or why don't you come play with me? Well, let's go to the range and hit some balls. That has to be, I think, the, the ingredient that may be missing in the question 
that you pose? Are we doing too much to the new and not including the core? Possibly. Are we not including the core to engage the new? Possibly. And I think what you're going to see going forward from different discussions that were in breakout groups, from the overall general topic of, of leadership and leading the golf industry, I think you're going to see some things coming down the road. A couple that I'm not privy to, to reveal right now that address the core golfer in a way that we're addressing the newbie that can, that can bring the two together at some point. And I think when you see that, industry growth will take care of itself. Yeah, some uh, very interesting points uh, that you made, and, and I certainly understand that, and, and I look forward to seeing, uh, you know, anything that, that can help uh, address some of these issues. Um, John D., I, I'm posing the same question to you, and I, and I guess, you know, what, what makes me ask this question is I, I look at it from the standpoint, you know, it's always exciting for something new. You know, we're, we all kind of get jazzed up when something new happens, when we have a new experience. And I think it's very exciting for the industry to look uh, towards the future of golf um, and, and new potential people. It's like working with a, a, a clean canvas, if you will. You've got a, a fresh uh, new canvas to work with, and it's kind of exciting as, as instructors and as an industry. But You've got a lot of folks out there, you know, we look at roughly 25 plus million golfers here in the United States alone, uh, many of, of whom have been playing golf for, for several years. And, and I wonder in our enthusiasm to uh, adopt and bring new people to the game, um, that are we missing opportunities, as John just pointed out, to engage our core golfers, um, you know, in, in along for the the uh, the fun, if you will, and not sort of putting, uh, you know, obviously I know we're teaching a lot of these folks, but I think that some of them might feel that, hey, the industry really isn't addressing our needs and they're more focused over here. Do you agree with that? And if so, what are your thoughts? That's a great question, Ted. Um, I, I agree with a lot of what, what John said um, um, in the fact that the first thing when you posed the question, the first thing that popped in my mind was top golf. And, um, you know, I look at what the millennials, you know, and, and what, you know, the, the time, you know, we've already talked about time and, and most people don't have four and five hours to spend on an afternoon, um, you know, playing golf. And so, uh, the purists, the, the, the people that, that have, that love the game, um, and, uh, and have been playing the game their entire life, they're kind of used to that. They, they, that's not a big deal for them to take the Saturday. They know on Saturday, you know, I'm going to tee off, but they have their time in their mind and everything. So it's a, it's a very difficult thing from a marketing standpoint to hit both of those, those demographics because um, as a golf professional, the one thing that I note, that I note is, is that men – typically don't take clinics they'll take private lessons they want big chunks of time to play golf and they want to take individual instruction women kids they like group atmospheres um, they like to take group clinics they like to have more of the social aspect and they but yet they don't have maybe all day they may they get nine holes in so it's really 
you know, I don't have an answer of how to market it. Um, and, and I don't feel like anyone is being neglected. I think your purist is going to play regardless of the marketing. Uh, they, because they're, they're just like me. I'm going to watch the masters. It doesn't matter who's in the lead. I'm going to watch the masters, but when Tiger Woods is in the lead, everybody watches. So it's kind of the same way for, for the game of golf and the PGA, um, I think has done, I think has done some really good things. Uh, the junior league, I think is excellent. The, for the kids, like kind of the team atmosphere. I think that is an excellent program. I wasn't as fond of the golf get ready. I didn't like the name. In fact, I just filled out a survey. I didn't like the name of it. I just didn't think it was a, a appropriate name. I think they could have come up from a marketing standpoint. So to me, that was a little bit of a miss. I tried that program and I didn't, really have a lot of response uh, for it. So um, it's, it's hard to, to have a blanket marketing program that's going to that's gonna tie and, and that umbrella is going to cover everyone. But I do I, – I am very happy with the fact that there's more diversity in the game, there's more women playing the game, there are more kids playing the game. And I think Top Golf, I think Top Golf is fantastic. Uh, and it is part of now the PGA – I mean, if, if Top Golf builds a new facility – as a PGA member, I get an email on my career link. I get a, an email on it. Hey, there's a job available in this city for Top Golf uh, because they provide instruction. It's more than just going and playing a game. You can go there and get instruction as well. So um, I don't know if I directly answered your question, but um, mm-hmm. it, it's a great question, Ted. And I hopefully the listeners out there, you know, will will um, will look at at the game and and try to find the guidance I, I believe from a PGA professional to, to help them, you know, get started. Well, I think both of you really, if I was to, to give an honest assessment, I think answered it as best as you can, given the circumstances. I think both of you hit it right on the head. I think that, you know, there's always going to be uh, room for improvement in whatever we do as an industry. And I think that it is a very challenging um, thing to to be able to address both areas because obviously you have your um, you know your purists if you will who uh, enjoy playing traditional rounds of golf and then you've got a younger generation that enjoys um, the adaptation of technology more technology in their game and uh, want to go out and just kind of have more of a social thing and not just necessarily take it as serious as your everyday golfer. So it's kind of a balancing act. And I think, you know, one of the things that I look at is how can we as an industry encourage more family golf? Now, obviously, you know, John, as you, uh, you pointed out, you mentioned that, um, you know, that uh, men tend to want to have individual lessons uh, and not as favorable towards group lessons whereas uh, women and obviously juniors like to have more of a social or group environment. I think that we need to find ways to sort of include the guys in that as well uh, in more of a family environment. Um, so that way they're feeling, and that, they can still do other things, but I think that that is something that maybe could help bridge that gap a little bit. Um, you know, grandparents, for instance, uh, getting involved more with the junior programs and things like that, so that you know, grandpa, if you will, or granddad is out there uh, getting involved with the next generations of a future golfer. So there's a lot of thought there, and there's really no right or wrong answer because I think there's 
uh, an opportunity for the industry. Uh, and, and John, uh, you know, as you pointed out too, that uh, there are things in the works right now that may help bridge uh, some of that gap. All right, um, final question to you both. Um, John D., I'm going to start with you first. Describe what makes for you a good lesson. A good lesson for me is, um, first of all, is when the student shows up on time and is warmed up before we start. Uh, I, I think that a lot of students out there, if you're paying $100 or 150 or 75 or whatever you're paying for your lesson, get there early, be warmed up so that when the time starts, we're going right into the lesson and not me standing there watching you warm up because you need to warm up before. If you want to work on your driver, you need to. You can't come in there cold. you got to be warmed up for it. Um, the, the second thing is I love it when um, I don't have a problem if a student struggles. I have no problem with that. I like it when they ask good questions. I like it uh, when they give me feedback, um, you know, on shots. Uh, sometimes um, I, I had a student one time who hit one of the prettiest shots I've ever seen him hit, and um, and he didn't say a word. And so I just thought, man, he, uh, you can't do it any better than that. And he just looked at, at me and just said, you know, I hit that one pretty well, by the way. And, and I was like, he was so matter of fact about it. And, and I, you know, I wanted him to have fun. I wanted him to, to have a little bit of a celebration. So I like it when someone gets excited and I don't have a problem if they get a, you know, if they hit a bad shot, if they get a little, you know, a little determined and they're a little upset, I certainly don't want them to get angry, but, but I like it when they ask good questions. And then the most important thing to me is I give drills for all with all of my lessons. And I love it when I, the next day I look out there and I see that student working on my drill because I know they listened. I know they're working on what they're supposed to, and I know they're going to get better. So to me, that would be a perfect lesson. Excuse me. (coughs) Pardon me. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, obviously, and and John H, I know you've talked about this uh, as well. I'm going to give you an opportunity to uh, express uh, what you feel is a good lesson, but uh, I know you've expressed that good communication between uh, teaching uh, a teacher and uh, and student and or coach uh, is paramount. So give us your thoughts on what is a good lesson for you, John Hughes. It's, it's going to be similar to what John had mentioned. I, I think getting there prepared, uh, ready to go, warmed up. Uh, I know the, the first lesson of the day for me, uh, I normally someone gets there early enough where I don't mind watching them warm up, but if I've got back to back to back and you know that ahead of time and, and I let my people know that uh, come a little bit early, I always have an extra bag of balls somewhere. It's always good to do that. Um, the communication part is very, very simple. Talk to us. Tell us what you're feeling. Tell us what your frustrations are. Tell us what your good things are. Let's build off those good things, not necessarily dwell on the bad. And the more you can communicate that to your instructor, hopefully the more uh, progress you can make with, within the lesson itself and, and afterwards. And as, as far as John said with drills, I don't think I give any lesson to anybody without giving some kind of drill and or homework. Homework is something, as I said before, you can do in the house for five minutes a day or in the office five minutes a day. But I think the real key for you, the customer, you, the golfer, 
is to realize that you've made an investment in yourself to go take that lesson. Why would you not want to invest some time afterwards to ensure that what you learned in that lesson can be sustainable? Uh, that's the real key. And, and to understand how to diligently practice and ask those questions of your instructor. How do you want me to practice this? How should I practice it? How often should I practice it? But the real key question is why am I practicing this? If your instructor can't mm -hmm. tell you why, then maybe you ought to research going to a different instructor. But that why factor is why you're there, why the instructor is providing you what you're needing, and ultimately why you'll get better. And, and so long as that why question is being asked throughout, not only from me to the, to the pupil, to the customer, to the client, but from the client back to me, that's a successful lesson. Yeah, I think, you know, I think both of you, uh, again, hit it right on the, the head. You know, one of the things that, you know, I always find interesting is when somebody comes for a lesson, I can usually tell within the first few seconds whether it's going to be a good lesson or not by their attentiveness, um, by their willingness to, um, you know, be relaxed. If, if I see them agitated or wanting to, you know, speed things up or in a rush all the time, you know, pra uh, not really practicing, but just sort of going through the motions, then I know that their mindset is not receptive that particular day. And a lot of times, and I don't know whether you guys have had to do this or not, but they'll actually be, uh, it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, I will actually suggest rescheduling. If I sense that the person is, is and it's not that they're agitated about the lesson, but maybe they're just, their mind is not there uh, in that particular moment. So I know it's not probably, uh, even though we've set this ahead of time, and I certainly don't want to lose the lesson, I think sometimes you have to be cognizant of that because a lot of times if somebody's coming in with, um, and I hate to use the word attitude, but not a receptive uh, mindset, then usually it's not going to be a successful lesson for me. And I, I agree with, with what you guys said as far as putting together a good lesson. I certainly want them to be prepared and, and warmed up, and I want to know that whatever we've worked on before, if it's not a first-time student, I want to know that they've been working on some of those drills. And I'll, I'll question them about that. It's the first thing that I'll talk to them about besides hello, is that, you know, what have you been working on? Have you been focusing on that? And, um, you know, what questions did you have? Because usually somebody will come to the next lesson, they've got questions from the last lesson. They might say, well, you know what, when I think about it now, I really didn't understand this, and we'll go through that. So I think that the communication is, is as I said, paramount. I think that's critical for student-teacher relationships, um, but I think the person has to be in a receptive mode when they come for that lesson, and if they've got other things on their mind and they're not coming with a clear mind, um, then they're apt to not enjoy the experience, and then obviously, ultimately, that reflects neg negatively uh, on us because then you know, we're not in, in the best uh, frame either. So, um, but great answers, guys. And, and as always, thank you for, for taking part on uh, Coach's Corner. Uh, John D., I'm going to let you go first, and then John Hughes. Uh, let the folks know where they can reach out if they want to get in touch with you and, and uh, either connect with you somehow or, or maybe they have questions. Well, Ted, first of all, I want to thank you for all you do, and thank you for having me on the show. And, John, I really enjoyed it. I, uh, you, you gave some great answers. I really enjoyed being on the show with you as well. Um, 
I am a, a staff instructor with GolfSwing.com. So um, you, I have about 300 videos. If the listeners out there want to want to watch any, uh, become members of GolfSwing.com and watch the videos. And there's a lot of great instructors on there as well. You can also follow me on social media and under as John Decker Golf Instruction. And again, I spell my first name J O N John Decker Golf Instruction. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, YouTube and LinkedIn. Um, I also have a podcast with Dr. Angelica Napolitano. It's called the Golf Swing RX Podcast, uh, the prescription for your game. Ted was actually uh, a guest of ours um, uh, a few months ago, and and uh, so that's a, you can follow us there as well. Um, and my book, Golf Is My Life: Glorifying God Through the Game, is available on Barnes and Noble and Amazon websites. Um, I'm available for public speaking. And I now have a. I also have a, a Bible study with my book. Um, so if you're interested in a golf Bible study clinic type format, I'm trying to uh, put that, that together as well. Reach out to me on social media. I'd be glad to to come to your area and provide that service for you. Perfect. Well said. Um, and John Hughes. Uh, Ted, always a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to give back to the game through your podcast. I agree with John. You're doing wonderful things here in the industry. John, always a pleasure to be on the show with you. Best of luck with all the things that you've got going on. You're a busy person like I am. If you're trying to get in touch with me, it's real simple. John Hughes Golf, whether it's .com, app, hashtag, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, doesn't matter. Look up John Hughes Golf, and it'll be really easy to find me. Uh, I'm working on some video projects myself. I'm hoping to announce in January. And for all those people that I won't be talking to between now and the second Thursday of December, happy Thanksgiving to everyone out there. Perfect. Well, thank you guys, as always, uh, for bringing your best. I appreciate it very much. And uh, since I won't be talking to you, uh, like, well, actually, I will. But um, in case I don't, have a happy Thanksgiving. And I look forward to you guys joining me again uh, the next time uh, here on Golf Talk Live, uh, particularly the Coach's Corner. So have a great uh, holiday week uh, coming up. And uh, thanks again, always, for your best. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. All right, that was John Hughes and John Decker uh, here tonight on the Coach's Corner panel. I want to thank them again uh, for always uh, doing a fantastic job. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got a great guest coming up here in a, just a few moments, uh, Charlie Fisher, the manager uh, of uh, channel sales and marketing for Golf Pride uh, Grips. He'll be joining me here in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, here's a, a little announcement from GolfSwing.com. Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? GolfSwing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, GolfSwing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, hit it closer, or just sink more putts, GolfSwing.com's staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at GolfSwing.com. All right, and remember, at the end of the show, uh, be sure to visit GolfSwing.com, enter promo code GOLFTALKLIVE at checkout, and you'll receive up to 50% uh, savings off their subscription price. Uh, it's a great uh, website. A lot of, as, as uh, John Decker just mentioned uh, in the closing comments on the Coach's Corner panel, that he is a staff instructor with them, and a lot of great videos. He has about uh, roughly 300 videos 
uh, give or take on their uh, platform as well as some other great uh, teacher professionals as well. So you want to make sure that you go and, and check them out. So go to golfswing.com, enter promo code GOLFTALKLIVE at checkout to get the 50% uh, savings on the subscription. And uh, I think you'll uh, enjoy uh, watching some uh, top quality instruction from some of the best guys uh, out there in the business. Uh, so be sure to do that at the end of the show. Uh, all right, I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about uh, tonight's guest before he uh, is ready to go, uh, just to save a little bit of time. Uh, this evening's guest actually uh, was referred to me by uh, one of the guys that was just on. John Hughes uh, is uh, well acquainted, uh, acquainted, excuse me, with uh, our, our guest this evening, Charlie Fisher. Uh, Charlie is the manager of channel, uh, channel sales and marketing for Golf Pride Grips. Uh, he is an industry uh, professional with proven success uh, driving sales, marketing, and consumer research projects. Uh, his personal goal is to add value uh, wherever he can. Uh, the experiences that he has had thus far have enabled him to envision the big picture while carefully managing the details. Uh, very important. Uh, he's a very enthusiastic leader, passionate communicator, and a team builder uh, who uh, creates effective relationships across functional uh, teams to ensure goals are met uh, or succeeded. Uh, he thrives uh, when surrounded by others that are equally as engaged and brings a can-do attitude for creatively designing and launching new programs. So we're going to talk to him uh, about what he's been doing, uh, but we'll get to know him a little bit first um, uh, before we uh, get into some of the other questions. Um, so we're looking forward to him, and I'll just as soon as he comes on board, I will bring him on. Um, another, uh, uh, just a quick reminder, uh, next week, uh, you may have tuned in this, this week actually to the Women of Golf show. Um, this past Tuesday at, uh, from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, I had scheduled uh, Mike Nichols, the chief business officer of the Symmetra Tour. Uh, regrettably, regrettably, excuse me, uh, Mike was not able to make it. He was actually mid-flight uh, during the broadcast and just was not able to uh, uh, to get a, a good enough signal to be able to do it. But uh, we had another uh, great gentleman, uh, Dean Schneider, filled in for him. Uh, he was uh, the tournament director for the senior LPGA uh, tournament. And uh, he was uh, very graciously able to fill in for Mike. Uh, we have scheduled, uh, or rather rescheduled, Mike Nichols for this coming Tuesday. So make sure uh, that you join, uh, actually Cindy will be back as well, that you join us next Tuesday, this coming Tuesday rather, uh, and we will have Mike Nichols, the Chief Business Officer of Symmetra Tour, as he helps wrap up the Symmetra Tour season telling us all uh, about some of the great uh, events uh, throughout the year and uh, as he talks about some of the uh, young ladies who made it to in the top 10 of the uh, Volvic race for the card. Of course, as uh, they are heading to the LPJ now, we interviewed uh, a number of them over the last several weeks. So um, he's going to help wrap up that and tell us what uh, we can expect for 2020 as well. So make sure you tune into that. Uh, uh, again, just to remind you that Mike Nichols will be on this coming Tuesday uh, on the Women of Golf show on the blogtalkradio.com network. Uh, and uh, he'll be uh, scheduled this week, so make sure you tune into that. Um, as I mentioned, you know we're going to also uh, have a show uh, next week here on Golf Talk Live, but then we'll be off for both shows the following week uh, to observe Thanksgiving, uh, and then we'll be returning the first Tuesday and Thursday of December uh, to carry on for a few more shows, I believe three each, uh, and then uh, we'll be breaking for uh, the Christmas holidays uh, and right through and will not be returning on air until the beginning of February. Uh, February will relaunch both of the shows. So 
So we're taking an extended break uh, to get things ready for the new season uh, here, uh, both on uh, uh, Golf Talk Live and the Tuesday morning's uh, Women of Golf show. So uh, make sure that you uh, you uh, stay tuned, and I will uh, keep you updated, as I always do, through social media, uh, all of my social media pages and and posts and blogs and so forth, so you can check out there uh, to get all the information. All right, I see he is ready. Uh, please welcome my very special guest, Charlie Fisher, Manager of Channel Sales and Marketing for Golf Pride Grips. Good evening, Charlie, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. Good, good evening, Ted. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having us on this evening. Well, I appreciate it. Um, Charlie, I've already, uh, prior to you coming on, I'd already done an introduction and, and let the folks know a little bit about you, uh, what you do, and, and uh, some of your uh, uh, thoughts, if you will, towards uh, your objectives and so forth. But I thought what we would do first before we get into talk about Golf Pride uh, and uh, an overview of the company and also what you do there, maybe you could just give us a little bit of background as far as you as a professional in the industry before uh, coming to uh, Golf Pride. Oh, thanks, Ted. Sure. So I was uh, I was in a uh, I went to Methodist University in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and it is one of the 20 schools accredited by the PGA of America, to where basically you can go through uh, a four-year university and get a minor, technically, uh, in uh, professional golf management. And so I did that, and then um, knowing from a very early age, I wanted to get into the golf business, and uh, that was a, a great way to kind of spend four years uh, being close to Pinehurst, uh, which I eventually ended back up here. Um, but that was a great place to be. And then from there, I was an assistant golf professional for roughly three years out of college, uh, traveling from the Northeast to the South, kind of the typical, uh, you know, golf professional, assistant golf professional route um, as you're coming up through the, uh, through the ranks. And after about three years of that, I was lucky enough to get on with uh, Titleist Golf. And so uh, I spent about seven and a half years with Titleist Golf doing anything from, or doing everything, I should say, from customer service on the golf ball side of the business, uh, traveling with the title of Science Fan, which at the time was uh, a golf ball R&D project, and we were gathering a lot of infield data, um, got to travel around the country and, and visit a lot of really nice clubs. And then from that, I moved over to the West Coast, the club operation side, and I spent my last five years there um, working on the consumer testing side uh, with Titleist and Cobra Golf. Uh, and as I mentioned, after about seven and a half years there, I moved on to Golf Pride Grips, and I was the territory sales manager uh, for the Southeast region for about three years, and then moved into North America distribution sales manager, to the distribution sales manager role, um, and then uh, have been in the uh, channel marketing role for the last, uh, coming up on three years, Ted. It's, time's gone by really fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite the, uh, the resume. Um, just for, for the benefit of, of those that maybe don't understand, explain what the channel sales marketing is, just that position, what, what it involves and, and what you do. Sure. So, you know, if you think of the way the product is sold through market, right, there's, at least for us, we're a manufacturing company. So our, our products are sold through the OEM business. So companies like Titleist and Payne, Callaway and TaylorMade buy uh, golf pride products. And a lot of times it says TaylorMade or Callaway or Titleist on it. People don't know that it's golf pride. So we manufacture 
uh, grips for our OEM partners. So that's one channel. The second channel would be retail. So think of large retail uh, operations, um, you know, such as Golf Galaxy, PGA Tour Superstore, Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, any of the worldwide golf shops. And that would be large retail sales. And then we have our distribution sales, which um, is basically our wholesale business. We sell to um, wholesalers who then sell to Greengrass and small independent retail. So my role is basically uh, to work with our, our sales team and then come up, whether it's with promotions, uh, to co-market, co-promote um, our product along with, you know, work with in-store consumer um, promotions and, and trying to find uh, ways to incentivize consumers um, to, you know, think about regripping. And, and that's, that's really what this role, it works across multiple channels. Well, you know, that's interesting because, you know, I, I like the fact that most people out there, you know, of course, if they look down at their golf club, they see um, more often than not, they will see uh, golf, uh, golf pride, um, but probably don't know a lot of the backstories to it. So talk a little bit about the overview of golf pride itself. I mean, you've given some information there as far as what you specifically do, but um, how did the, you know, where did the company start? Uh, obviously it's a very innovative company. Um, talk about where they've been and where they're transitioning to now into the future, how things have changed. Yeah. And boy, you know, it, it's funny. I think, I think back to kind of where we were and we were at the, the front end of innovation in terms of the golf grip category. And that was in 1949 is when golf pride started. And we've really, and, and you know, and here we are in 2019, 70 years, we just celebrated our 70th anniversary and it, we've, we're still at the forefront of driving innovation and technology um, through golf grips. And so when you think back to the way that golf grips were originally put on, there may have been an underlisting or it may have just been a, a leather wrap just wrapped around a, a steel or hickory shaft. And so uh, that was the way that it, it was installed and maybe a little staple or a little tack kind of held it in at the bottom. Um, in, I think um, if you look at our founder, Thomas Faywick, he originally was, he made molded like clutch parts, you know, for cars. And so as a hobby, he was right. a golfer and he thought, you know, there's gotta be a way to, you know, get a golf grip on a club better than just wrapping a leather wrap around it. There's gotta be. And at the time there had been like where it was like vulcanized rubber, where you would basically put, you know, the, the end of a golf grip in a press and then basically like kind of iron rubber on or grip, I say iron, <laughs> but press it. And it would just, it would take this right. form around the grip that it was impossible, you know, roughly to, you know, to, to remove the grip. Um, but it, you know, so it wasn't replaceable and it wasn't really easy to put on. You know, you think about the way that golf grips are put on today, a little bit of tape, a little right. bit of grip solvent, and you can slide them on and, and do it in 30 minutes. Not the case prior to 1949. So being a, a, a manufacturer of rubber, he said, Hey, let's, let's figure this thing out. And, uh, um, that's, that's really what he did. So it was the first slip on golf grip, uh, was, was uh, invented by Thomas Faywick and, and basically golf pride, um, was bought by the Eaton corporation. So it transitioned from that right. 1949 period. It went on, he was doing this as a hobby and we gained some presence on tour. But then in 1969, Eaton Corporation, which is a large uh, conglomerate, we do everything from hydraulic power to, you know, we have an electrical, automotive, and and uh, aerospace business, um, and mostly we're a manufacturing company. So they actually bought Golf Pride in 1969, but they didn't know that they were really buying Golf Pride. They thought they were buying this like clutch part component company, <laughs> and Golf Pride was just part of it. <laughs> but you know, they were a profitable right. part of it, right? And um, so once they realized that, they, they kept us. 
And uh, we, we um, you know, at that point, we were – go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no uh, go ahead. Finish off. No, I was going to say, we were manufacturing grips uh, in Ohio at that time, and, and around the late 60s, we moved to Laurenburg, North Carolina, where we manufactured grips for about 40 years. And, um, yeah, that's we're still here in the Carolinas. You know, it's interesting, you know, when you listen to that sort of backstory uh, of golf pride, and it's interesting, and I'm sure there's many other examples throughout the golf industry, that, that folks that really had nothing to do with the golf industry – managed to create something in order to uh, make it, uh, you know, easier for golfers to obviously better grips and things like that. So people that were not really in the golf industry uh, were in some other industry, you know, whether they're an engineer or some other uh, skilled uh, individual, um, but invented something that ultimately has now made it a little easier for the rest of us. So it's kind of an interesting uh, and, and almost really humorous story when you think about it, when you put it in perspective. Um, I, I really like that. I, I didn't know that myself, so it's very interesting to hear that. Um, one of the other things, too, that, you know, again, as I mentioned, golf pride, of course, uh, is, is literally everywhere. Uh, you know, we see them um, with the tour players. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, Charlie, is how many t- – uh, what, what is the, the number as far as the percentage of tour usage, and um, what's the relationship – with golf pride and the tour? Yeah, that's a great question, Ted. So our, um, our average um, across all five major tours is we have about 80, 83% tour usage. And I think one thing that's really special for us is, is we don't pay anybody to play our stuff. Now we have great relationships with our OEM uh, tour, tour trailers out there and who have the relationships with the tour players, but you know, it's, it's something that, you know, when you look at the PGA Tour, and the Corn Ferry Tour, the LPGA Tour, the Senior Tour, um, you know, it's, it's in the European Tour, uh, to think that you have, you know, 80% of your product is being used um, and you're not paying anybody to play it in today's golf landscape, those guys, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing really that, they are, that, that, that they're using that they're not getting paid for. Uh, maybe shafts, um, but even so, um, you know, a lot of guys, you know, are definitely toting that. So, um, or have a relationship with a shaft company. So we feel, we feel pretty fortunate that the, the relationships that we have with our, our uh, tour trucks, um, and the tour reps out there, uh, who believe in our product, the players who, you know, you look at guys like Tiger Woods and, you know, they've, he's mm-hmm. pretty much used the same grip on his, on his full swing, you know, his, his, the swing clubs, <laughs> his entire career. That's one thing that hasn't changed in 82 wins that he's had out there. He's had the same grip played the same model I should say um, for all 82 wins and prior to that as well so um, we work really hard to, to make sure that the, the tour trailers have what they need that we're constantly bringing product out to them um, you know that isn't necessarily always on the retail shelf you know if guys are giving feedback to our tour reps saying hey you know this player is looking for something that's going to you know work a little bit you know better in this condition or we need more texture on a grip that's feedback that goes into making our product we're completely tour driven completely performance and player driven and um, all of that stuff, you know, the feedback that we get from the, from the major tours, you know, is inspiration for us to, to come out with a uh, new product. And the plus four and the aligned grips um, that we have are two families of grips. And one of our grips has both technologies integrated into it. But those are both tour inspired, completely tour inspired. So, hmm. You know, what, what's also interesting, and, and you, you sort of walked right into this, so I appreciate it. Um, you talk about really the, the testing ground, if you will. A lot of people probably don't realize. I mean, obviously you do in-house testing and things like that, 
um, when you're putting a lot of the products together, but obviously you need to get it into the hands of, of somebody that obviously plays a lot of golf uh, before you make it a, a officially out to the consumer for consumption, if you will. So obviously that relationship with the tours is critical for a company like Golf Pride because you want to make sure that these guys and gals um, are really putting it through the paces, if you will. Talk a little bit more about that. What, um, when you have a product that's first coming out and you want to introduce it to, to the market, you're going to go through this process. So give us an idea of how the process works. Well, so again, going back to the tour, we, we take a look at, well, there's, there's multiple ways that we go about doing that. I mean, I think if you were to look at your, um, you know, in any company that would take a look at their portfolio of products, right? And you look at, um, you know, you have, we have products that are super soft. We have products that are really firm and heavy in texture uh, and aggressive in feel. And, you know, those aren't necessarily, you have two opposite ends of the spectrum, the same way with a golf ball, where you have a golf ball that is very soft and you have a golf ball that's very firm, some that are distance balls, some that, uh, you know, are better around the greens and some that have both and are good in all areas of play. Uh, it's the same thing with golf grips. And, you know, I, I feel like uh, it does start with, you know, when you think of technology. So I'll give you an example, plus four technology. If you look at 90% of the tour players that are playing across all major, they have uh, across all major tours, there's some sort of tape profile that's layered. And so when we say plus four in our product, that means that it's actually built up the equivalent of plus four wraps on the bottom hand. So whichever, if you're right-handed or left-handed, that's on the bottom hand. Mm -hmm. And and what we found is, is as we were digging back through this, and I can't tell you how many I say, this is no joke, literally pulling grips out of trash cans or tour trucks. And we had our tour reps help us do that, but like saving grips, I should say, uh, as they were pulling off players clubs, because we wanted to understand the tape profile of the majority of players out there. Why? And then basically once we understood, Hey, look, look at these extra layers of tape on the bottom hand. Why are they doing that? So it, it really, right. You know, you think of all of the major sports, baseball, tennis, you know, whether it's uh, hockey or lacrosse, they all have a constant right. taper in the handle, right? There isn't a taper, but yet with mm. golf, you know, we have shafts that taper down. And so the handle automatically, I'd say the handle of the grip, uh, tended to taper down as well. But better players and players on tour were, you know, going complete opposite. They were building it up to match the way that they played other sports. So how did that transfer? You look at the CP2 grip that we have, and that's one of our top. The CP2 wrap mid-size grip, which is our softest grip, is the number one selling grip at retail. And it has plus four technology in it. But yet there's, you know, I think maybe Freddie Couples and Kenny Perry play that grip. So it's not a high uh, percentage use on tour, but the technology in it really translates to the consumer. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, and I think that for the consumers, you know, there's a lot of things that they don't understand. Um, first off, obviously tour players are, are, are going through grips uh, quite frequently because of the, the amount of usage they're getting. They're obviously having to have them changed uh, regularly. But our average uh, high handicap golfer out there are lucky if they change them once a season. What do consumers or, or our average golfers need to know about grips, uh, the importance of, of having them change, and how often should they have them change based on their playing abilities? Sure, Ted. So or rather, fre average, rather frequencies. And, and I'll speak for swing grips. Um, the average PGA Tour player is changing their grips about every six weeks. And they have access to that. They're probably hitting more balls, you know, in that six-week period than, you know, some people do in multiple years. Uh, so they are changing. They're right. changing way more regularly. Um, we recommend that uh, 
you know, avid golfers change their grips at least once a year, every 40 rounds or once a year, which would be about average. Um, but, you know, the reason being is, is you think about this, you know, it's, it's, if you were to take, and we actually did a study on this, and which I'll get into in a second, but, um, you know, if you think of, of tires on the, on the road, right, you don't head into the winter season, which we're heading into with, with balder slick tires, you know, it's definitely not good, especially in, in areas where there's snow and, and, uh, and ice. And that's the same way with the golf grip. And think of it this way, if a grip is slick or it starts to get some wear on it, you know, you're, you're really having to grip it tighter to hold on to it. And so, you know, our whole thing is, is you should be able to grip the club comfortably and you shouldn't have to be holding on for dear life. That's why we have all these different textures and tacks, you know, tactile feels uh, so that, um, you know, you don't, whatever you prefer, whatever's going to help you hold on to the club and allow you to free the swing, the, to swing the freest, that's the grip that should be in your hand. So, um, you know, I feel like that's something that consumers want. You know, the, the amazing thing, and I think that there's some retail stores that are out there that have their regripping at the front or in the back and they're open spaces. So consumers can walk up and see how a grip is actually regripped. The interesting thing about it is, is, you know, and I think of all the demo days I've done as a, as a sales rep, people are amazed at watching a grip getting cut off and then getting slid on. Mm-hmm. It's almost, uh, you would think that it's, it's this theatrical, <laughs> like, amazement, like the wizard, you know, behind the curtain of, oh, my gosh, so that's how a grip actually gets on a club? Uh, so I think that's part of right. it is really educating consumers that it can be done. Um, and, and, you know, funny enough, I mean, of the, of the regrippers that, that are, are regripping, about 30 to 35% of them are do-it-yourselfers. You know, they're doing it at home. So there, there's a large right. um, percentage of golfers that, that do know how to do it. The biggest opportunity for golf pride and for the, uh, the golf grip category is the probably 50% of avid golfers that don't regrip at all. And um, that's, that's the education we want to we inspire them and, and actually come up with performance-driven products that, you know, really they're missing out if they're not regripping. Yeah, I, I can think back over the years, you know, as both a teacher professional and just, you know, playing for fun on the golf course. And I can remember sometimes, you know, I would go by myself and get paired up with, with uh, some amateurs. And I would, one of the first things I would do is I would look at first, I would look at the, um, the club face just to see whether or not they actually ever clean them. But I would more importantly, I'd look at the grip <laughs> and it, it was amazing. Just as you pointed out, I mean, they were pretty bald and pretty slick and and you know i'm from the northeast i'm originally from canada if you haven't picked up by now and uh so our season was quite shorter but um what was always very interesting was i mean i can remember playing with people that had not changed their grip in many years never mind on an annual basis and you know they would wonder why among other reasons why they would have terrible golf shots and i said well it's like you know, holding onto a piece of, of cold steel. I mean, you've got nothing left on the grip. There's no, you know, and, and people just don't get that. And, and obviously, you know, they don't have to change them as the pros do every six weeks. But, you know, if you're playing with any sort of frequency throughout the season, I think you, as you pointed out, I think you need to change them at least once a season. And obviously if you're somebody that plays a lot of golf, you might even want to consider changing them twice a season. Um, and whether they do it themselves or, or have somebody that's, uh, you know, qualified to do that for them, uh, you know, that's up to them. But um, what are some new things? That w- where is the, the industry going as far as you're concerned? What do you see the future uh, for Golf Grip? Yeah, I think, um, I think the one, the, the biggest untapped um, opportunity for us is, is really 
and I say this in a positive way, is to exploit the benefit of regripping and then the benefit of some of our different technologies. So um, one of the things, one of the studies that we did, and we had an independent test group um, actually do this um, for us. And so we're able to simulate grips as they age, and we can simulate them in year, two year, and three year increments. And so we actually, using, using the identical clubs um, that were spec'd out to identical, identical specs in terms of flex and loft and, and, and everything else, we actually did a six iron and a driver test with consumers and basically we were trying to understand, Hey, is there, you know, what is the difference uh, in, in testing? Now there's some intricacies in consumer testing where rotating the club and there's other things to make sure that, you know, you're eliminating any sort of biasness uh, just even if they don't know that they're biased. So, you know, through the, through the consumer testing process. So we made sure that we were dialed in and that we eliminated as much potential uh, bias in the test results as we could. And, uh, with that said, like we found that the average yardage with a six iron was four yards less with a three-year-old grip, simulated three-year. And I'm talking this thing was slick, probably what you'd find in some member's bag somewhere at a country club, you know. Uh, and the driver, it was seven, uh, it was like 7.2 yards with a driver in terms of distance. And that, that to me is pretty significant. And, you know, it's funny, we don't talk about that stuff a lot. Those are things that we know. Because we want to be, you know, this is part of the new facility, and, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about the new facility at Golf Pride um, and all the things that we plan to bring out of it. But um, the same thing with the Align technology. So the Align technology is an external rib. And one of the cool things is, is rib grips have been around forever. I mean, you think back to the days of Ben right. Hogan. Ben Hogan would take a, take a hanger, right, straighten it out and tape it to the back of his club. Now, let me tell you, Ted, those, those, uh, those ribs in today's standards for the USGA, that would be an illegal rib on the back of the grip. That'd be too, uh, right. picking up right. too much. <laughs> but, um, uh-huh. I wouldn't want to be the guy to call rules and fraction on Ben Hogan. But, um, but with that said, in today's world, you know, if you looked at, uh, you could go back 10 years and you would have a, a grip with a rib on the back of it, a reminder, you could stick it in a basket side by side and nobody knew that, you know, Hey, look, um, uh, this is a rib grip or this isn't a rib grip. I mean, heck, probably some consumers went to the store and would get a grip. Maybe one grip would have it because it was mixed in with the others. The other thing right. that is, is um, we, we wanted to be able to highlight and create some textural feel to the back of it too. So uh, with the Align grip that, that we brought out, it's got a firmer texture on the back, a firmer piece of rubber and a texture on the back. So, so not only does it protrude more, uh, when it's actually installed on the grip, but it flexes out. But 30% of tour players are using, you know, a reminder grip. And you think back 20 years ago, almost all clubs that were coming from OEMs had a reminder grip on them, but it just went away. And so for us, again, going back to that testing side of things, um, we we wanted to make sure that, hey, this, this really brings a benefit. So again, doing similar tests, you know, using a reminder grip, players were able to actually hit it four yards closer to the target line with a six iron. Uh, and eight yards closer to the target line with a driver. And so when you're looking at these things and you're thinking of an iron shot, uh, you know, as you're four, you know, four yards right of a target versus being on the target line, that's 12, 16, you know, 12, 12 feet or so, uh, potentially closer to the pen. Um, so, you know, as we're thinking about what's the next thing in grip technology, Ted, for us, it's, it's bringing performance-driven products to the market. We've, we're getting better at quantifying these results of what this specific grip does. And once we get there and we, you know, and we're to a place where, you know, we feel comfort, comfortable bringing this up to the masses, um, you know, this is, that, that for us is that it is a performance-driven product. You know, we don't want to be the, 
hey, this driver goes, you know, five more yards. And that is the case for a lot of drivers, but we don't want to, because that's a, that's a, that's a tone or a message that's put out there, you know, every two or three years, right? We don't want to be that. Right. Because it's, the golf grip is a, it's a, it's a very um, personal piece of equipment. And you can't say that, you know, a jumbo grip is going to hit the, hit it farther, you know, than a, than a small grip. It's, you know, if it fits you, the jumbo grip may hit it farther. If it's, a, if it's too small for you, no, it may be costing you four or five yards. So we're getting, to, we're getting to a point where we're going to be able to quantify those, those sort of data points and, and share that with the consumer. And, and again, when it's, there's some true benefit and it's performance, uh, it can really impact your performance. That's where, that's where the golf grip category is going for us. Right. And, and you, you know, raise a very important thing um, about really being properly fitted uh, even for the grip. I mean, we get fitted for the golf club, but it's just as important to be fitted for the grip because if you don't have, again, as you said, if you've, if you've got a jumbo grip on there or if you've got too uh, small of a grip on there uh, and you're somebody like myself that has fairly big hands, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to play your best because it's going to actually impede your ability to uh, hold on to the club properly. Um, another thing I want to ask you, and then we're going to talk about your new facility uh, that Golf Pride has um, and, and getting on to the about the grip again is there's a lot of information, particularly for golf professionals, and I'm talking about teaching professionals now that can learn by looking at their students' golf grip as far as wear patterns and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, and I'll give you an example uh, just to clarify for the listeners. You know, sometimes you will look at uh, it's not just a matter of being slick or or worn. Sometimes it depends on where on the grip. Uh, the wearing is uh, for some golfers that obviously I'm sure the pros are a little bit more consistent, but some of our high handicapper weekend golfers, there might be certain areas. Do you guys look at that? Is that information useful uh, when you're looking at the um, grip? And is that something that the teacher professionals could learn something by looking at their students grips? Boy, you know, so <clears throat> That's, that's, that's really next level thinking for us. I, I think in terms of, you know, the, the wear patterns, I, I wouldn't say that that, um, I wouldn't say that that's, those are data points that we've really taken into consideration. What I do think is that, you know, um, if, if the hands and that's where I think the linkage in the history that golf pride has with the PGA professional is so important, you know, in, in, in the, in that whole fitting process. Right. I mean, cause if the hands are placed correctly mm-hmm. on the club, you know, yes, there may be some wear after a lot of use. Um, but you know, I think it, there's a lot of things that go into grip fitting, right? Yes. I mean, you mentioned you have larger hands, right. But you have long fingers or right. a, a really wide palm. And so it's like, that's where it's like, um, you know, the typical hand measurement for us was, was the, the kind of, you know, like, well, let's measure the hand, you know, well, okay, you have an eight right. from the, you know, crease in your wrist, the tip of your middle finger, it's eight inches. Well, that means you're a mid-sized grip. Well, hold on a second, right? Like, that doesn't necessarily right. mean that that's the grip you need to be in because, you know, are you, do you grip it in your fingers or do you grip it more in your palm? You like Mo Norman, right? You know, so. Um, right. I think that that's, you know, obviously the way that you grip the club, you know, dictates a lot of the way that you swing the club. And um, I think that's where getting fit and working with a golf professional, you know, to make sure that, you know, everything is aligned, right. That your equipment matches the swing that you're trying to make. And that obviously the grip is a huge part of that because it's your only connection to the club. So, um, but I feel like, you know, for us, we're constantly evaluating what benefit 
from the performance standpoint is having the right grip. And that's where we ultimately want to get to. Funny enough, 60%, roughly 55 to 60% of the grips that are sold at retail are, you know, we call them oversized, but that includes midsize and oversized head uh, jumbo. So when you think of you right. know, that many grips that are actually heading into that, that, uh, that size, um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, because if you look at most golf clubs that are sold, you know, off the rack, shall we say, if you look at the grip that they have on, it's usually very, very thin, a very um, sort of a standard, if you will, grip compared to what you see, uh, as you said, at some, especially at some of the big box stores and that, they tend to be more midsize and, and oversize. Um, so you're right there. The reason why I asked that, that uh, question, Charlie, is because, you know, more often than not, when I've worked with students and I, and I look at their grips, um, you know, obviously, again, depending on whether they're more of a palm player or more in the fingers uh, is going to vary a little bit. But usually if, if there's a lot of improper uh, connection to the golf club, you will start to see some very unusual wear patterns. Um, and that's why I asked it. I wonder if that was a factor or if that's something that uh, Golf Pride is, is, is looking at or is going to maybe look at um, as they consider uh, future models and future uh, generations of golfers, if that's a, a factor that they're going to consider down the road, if they're not already doing so. And that was why I asked that question. No, and, and I think if you look back to probably, you know, besides the Tour of Velvet, the number one selling grip of all time, right, you know, um, outside of the Tour of Velvet would probably be uh, the victory grip, right? And what was unique about right. the victory grip? That probably was on every OEM club from 1957 until, you know, heck, I mean, I, I, think, I think of, uh, you know, Title has had the V50 and V55 uh, iron, you know, irons with the with a corded version of, of the hand placement swing right grip right, and what did that do? That actually helped like they were, they were indicators of where to place your hands on the club, and that's really important. So right. we've had grips in different types of I think of our power link grip that we probably released in 1998 or 99 where it had sections of where to place where the thumbs the, the kind of the pad of your thumb should set uh, a recommended place for it. You know, within the rules of golf we have an alignment aid on the back, right? And I say an alignment, it's not really an alignment aid, but I mean a, a line uh, reminder grip on the back. That's about as close as right. we can come to making a recommendation. And it's not even a recommendation. It's to allow a player to grip it consistently. That's really the most important characteristic of the align grip is to allow the person to feel where their hands are on the club the same way every time. And especially as it relates to the face, right? So, you know, it's, it's one of those where, heck, I, I would – you know, you think of uh, like Bernhard Langer, he still uses the B55 grip and has the swing right grip right. right. Uh, there's a lot of tour players that are still using that, that. and why, you know. Uh, with a reminder grip, it's one less thing that, you know, tour players are telling us, why do you use reminder grip? That's one less thing that we have to think about. We just feel it. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, right. And I exactly. think that that's exactly so you know as we think about like where we're going there's always things in the works um, we've got an oven full of ideas in terms of um, and a roadmap full of products for the next four or five years of you know what are we thinking and what's the demand of the consumer and i think that some of some of the things that you're hitting on right here are that you know there's demand we hear it all the time on social media where's where's that hand placement where's the v55 where's the, the swing right grip right we miss it you know like um, and those right. are things that, that definitely take into consideration when developing product. But it's, I think those sort of things help with what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right, exactly. Um, let me ask you one other quick question, and, th and then I promise we'll, we'll talk about uh, the new facility uh, in, in more detail. Um, 
when you bring a new product, is there, um, as you mentioned, obviously you, you take it out on tour, the tour players uh, look at it, play with it, you know, try it out, um, and obviously you rely on their feedback. But is there a sort of formula or a percentage, if you will, um, where by which depending on their feedback, let's say 50% come back and say, hey, yeah, we really like this, and maybe the other 50 say, yeah, no, it's not so much. Is there a formula that you use and say, this is something we're going to take to the consumer market, or no, this is just not getting enough good feedback, and we're going to scrap this one for now until maybe something you know changes. Is that something, uh, or is that considered when you guys put a product to market? Oh, well, always. Um, you know, I think back to the vine grip uh, we came out with, and that was specifically designed for um, lady golfers. Um, I mean, right. honestly, Ted, we, we probably, I say interviewed, but we probably tested over 500 lady golfers before we launched that grip. Um, and, and honestly, you know, people think that, oh, well, lady golfers, you know, they're going to fit into an undersized grip and, and a standard size grip. And yeah, the grip looked pretty and it was, it, you know, had all the characteristics that, you know, seemed right. To be honest with you, more women fit into standard and midsize than they do undersize. And right. um, that was something really interesting for us. So here all the test results, you know, showed, yes, this is great. Uh, so that was a really big lesson for us. Um, so to answer your question, yes, we do rigorous consumer testing um, before consumer testing at multiple levels, multiple locations, and a lot of different, like, demographics in terms of the golfer, right, uh, handicaps. Um, and, and not even just the handicaps that we think that we're targeting, Hey, you know, this would be something for, you know, a better player, right? So it's going to be firm and it's going to give you feedback. It's going to be very responsive. Maybe it has some cord in it. Um, you know, we, we don't necessarily just want that because it cripple for you, right? You know, somebody sees right. Phil Mickelson playing a, multi, a white and black multi-compound, uh, and guess what grip they're going to play, right? It's the old, if it's played on Sunday, it's bought on Monday, Right. That is so right, true. Right. Um, and and yeah. um, whether, whether it's best for their game or not, you know, you, you, people are going to buy what they see players using. Um, grip, it's, it's, you know, so there's, there's that. Um, but to answer your question, we, you know, before we launch anything, is there a certain percentage? Um, you know, if something tests horribly uh, or even mediocre on, on, a, on a mediocre level, um, unless right. there is just such – a gut feeling like we've got something here, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to probably put it back in and try to reformulate. Um, we're, we're not bringing anything out that, that isn't getting, you know, all the, you know, the, the green lights. Um, it's just, it's, right. you know, and, and you, you can't, from a consumer trust level, you, we can't, any golf manufacturer can't afford to bring something out that's mediocre, you know, like it has to right. be from a quality perspective, from a performance perspective, it, it really has to. So, you know, one, those, those just aren't risk, you know, that, that you're willing to take. And you see conservative golf companies out there that, that are more conservative, you know what? And there's, I think that there's nothing wrong with that, especially if you know um, the type of player that you're targeting and the type of players that you're targeting products for, um, you know, Hey, look, it, it's, let's, let's make some, some variances and let's keep identifying and keep getting feedback and understanding what needs they're looking for. So, you know, if, if we have um you know, a, a multi-compound, um, you know, out there. And we know we keep hearing multi-compound plus four. One thing we kept hearing is, it's like, this is great, but we want that constant taper with, you know, a firm upper half and a soft lower half and a smaller grip. So we, we had to bring an undersize out. 
you know, and that's right with, with social media, consumers will tell you what <laughs> social media consumers will <laughs> yeah, tell but, you. Uh, <laughs> email, it doesn't take, yeah. a, a, you know, a 52 cent stamp to get, to, to get an email, you know, from a consumer. We get them. Right. You know? <laughs> and it's helpful. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you're exactly right with, with the, you know, the onslaught of, of um, accessibility now through social media and, and uh, obviously email. Um, it doesn't take long for uh, for you guys to get uh, feedback from consumers, and you know it's just it, it's interesting. And, and I, I've got some other things I want to ask you, but I, I want to move on to uh, you guys have a new facility. Uh, tell us where it is and and what you're doing at that facility, and and what you see the uh, the future at that facility, um, where it's where it's uh, headed. Boy, Ted, I'll tell you, we we uh, we moved into this uh, to this new uh, the golf pride. We call it the Global Innovation Center. And so um, if you think of, you know, where we were, we started in Ohio, we moved, we had a factory in Laurenburg, North Carolina, and here we are, we were 45 minutes from, you know, really in the home of American golf in Pinehurst. And, and we, we moved up here to the Southern Pines area, you know, probably 10 or 12 years ago. And, and it was, we knew that it was going to be a transition office. Um, and it's funny, I, I drive past it quite regularly. And it's, if you look at it from the outside, it looks like an old dentist office, our old building. And it's like we had a we had our <laughs> office space here. It did. It was a dentist office, right. uh, and and that's probably how some people thought. You know, think of getting their grips done. You know, like getting your teeth pulled. So that's we want to remove that. Um, so we would have we had an office space with you know our key leadership team, and then we had an R and D facility where in a micro environment we could manufacture grips, and that's where we you know were working on formulas for different rubber compounds and testing on you know all the rigorous testing that we put through you know different uh, you know levels of just quality testing. Um, they were in two separate places, so it's just like you know guys were having the, they were spending you know an hour a day driving back and forth between these facilities just to test something out, right? And so how can we bring all this together and, and have the teams you know, be in a more collaborative environment? And so um, for us, we've built this, this new building uh, that, is in, that is in Pinehurst, that is in with, within the side, the gates of uh, the number eight course um, at the Pinehurst Resort. And uh, so we've got a great relationship with, uh, with the resort and not really with, with all the golfers that come through here and the members that are members at the resort, that's really proved as a, as a really great test ground for us. Uh, we've got, you know, a plethora of consumers and testers that are through those gates, you know, every day. Uh, and the relationship with the resort allows us to, to best connect with, you know, the avid golfer and the golfers that, that desire to be avid golfers. So the facility is great. When you think of, um, for us, it's, it's kind of come along in stages, right? So we've moved in, uh, and I would say we're at about 65% um, functionality right now. There's a whole consumer wing to this building that hasn't yet opened. Uh, we, we will eventually have, um, in spring of 2020, a consumer retail space where basically we're going to be offering, um, you know, limited edition product. Uh, we will have some retail product there, but really a golf pride retail type of experience. And, and the reason for that, is to best understand how grips are sold, how how can how our retail partners uh, and, and our custom fitting partners, OEM partners, are interacting, and how is the grip interaction going? You know, with them, how are people? What's what are they thinking when they're coming in to make the grip selection process? And we want to see that firsthand when it's not set up in a test environment. Uh, so there will be right. there will be that, but but also <clears> to give <throat> consumers a chance to come in and have a true consumer experience and walk away with you know golf pride. Uh, gear and swag and, and grips that, you know, maybe are from the APAC region or from the tour that they can't get anywhere else. So that's something we want to offer 
um, you know, the, the golfing public. The second thing is, is the fitting studio. So as this evolves um, into, again, we look at this as a fitting studio and then also a research lab. Um, you think of systems up there, um, you know, whether it's TrackMan or Foresight or FlightScope that offer a ton of uh, downrange golf ball data. There's also uh, uh, tools out there, um, you know, like KVEST or, you know, the gear system that can um, actually right. understand what's happening with the body and the golf club throughout the swing. And, and I'm not certainly pushing any system at all. I'm just naming some out there that give that sort of data. Um, but sure. uh, no. basically for us, we want to know what happens uh, from a dynamic standpoint, what's happening to the golf club uh, and to the golfer when you put a grip that's too big for them in their hands. What's happened, what happens to the golf club and to, you know, the golfer, you know, to the swing when you put a grip that's too small. And so those are, those are elements, a grip that's firm, a grip that's too soft. What's happening to the golf club through that? So we see this as a research lab for our R&D team. Um, and again, having access to consumers, we expect to be bringing them in and gathering this sort of data. The third element of that is merchandising. Um, and that's something I'm definitely more, uh, I'm closer to uh, in terms of understanding how consumers are walking into a retail space. One, are they even attracted to the grip area? In some cases, we have grips sitting in baskets on a wall. And unless you know you're going in looking for a grip, you're never going to even know where to look. Uh, so how do we create the awareness at the point of purchase? The second point piece is, is how do we help consumers make the best decision for their game? And it's like, you know, we have grips that are, you know, think of 50 grips sitting in 50 baskets. And they're just loose grips sitting in baskets and they pick them up out of the, in loose form in the basket. They feel it. Oh, this might feel good. This might not feel good. In loose form. It may feel good. It may not. How do you help them get into the right size, into the right texture, the right um, uh, material for them? That's going to help, you know, one that's, that's going to help them feel the most connected to their club. And so that'll be a research lab for us in, in terms of guiding that consumer uh, journey um, into the store and then um, ultimately helping them find the best grip for their game. Uh, so there's, there's that whole realm. And, and obviously all the collaboration that comes along with having R&D teams, operations teams, product management teams, all in the same place and walking, sitting close to each other and walking past each other every day, there's no way that we can't be more collaborative and, and, and bring in more innovative products out there. Yeah, and, and consumers now are, are um, educating themselves more uh, as well. So you want to keep up to, uh, pace with that because I'm sure, you know, when consumers come in, you know, they may not have all the answers, but they're certainly coming. And we see this in the, in the golf teaching side um, and some of it good and some of it bad, but you know, they've, they've watched every video you can think of and they've listened to every tape and they've, you know, read every magazine and they're coming in with more questions now. So obviously as a, as a company, golf pride wants to make sure that you're keeping up, um, with the consumer's education aspect of it as well, so that when they're coming with questions, um, you're already ahead of the game, if you will. Let me ask you something. Um, it just made me think of this when you were talking about, um, you know, having multiple grips and multiple baskets, and they're sort of feeling things around. You know, as we have right now in, in, in present day, we have an, an aging population of golfers. Golfers are getting into their 50s, 60s, and 70s as baby boomers uh, have come up. Um, and you talked about different textures and things like that. Obviously, uh, and I know a few seniors that, that you know, talk about uh, the grips and things like that, that. They would like to have something that's a little bit softer um, because their hands, um, some may have, you know, some, a little bit of arthritis or what have you. Are there products available for that category as well to, of the consumer that maybe has issues with their hands that sometimes they're a little bit, um, you know, the, the standard grip, if you will, is maybe a little bit too firm for them? 
Uh, is there something out in the market for, for some of our aging golfers that would help with that? Yes, Ted. So we've got, and hence, you know, I referenced earlier that, you know, if you look at probably 55 to 60% of the grips that are sold at retail, uh, they're in that mid-size to oversized category, and and I and I believe that that hits to your point. You know, there whether right. you know whether it's a, a multi-compound plus four tour wrap, tour velvet, uh, you know, and and CP2, uh, you know, which they all come in mid-size and jumbo, and there is no question that there has been a move to that, and that could also be why the success of a plus four grip, you know, where it's more of a constant taper in the right hand. It just it just feels easier for guys to put their hands on, and they don't have to, you know, manipulate their hands. It's a more natural position. They don't have to close them um, as much with arthritis. Um, right. CP2, CP2 came out in 2014, and for us, you talk about a grip that we did consumer research for. I mean, we're talking hundreds of golfers that we put through the CP2 testing because you know it's it's one of those where, uh, in that category, we're competing against a polyurethane material. Uh, and with, I'm talking about our competitors' grips. Um, and one of the things that, that uh, you know, we manufacture rubber. And so just innately, rubber is going to be more durable than a polyurethane material. But we were going against a polyurethane material that was tacky and soft. And so it was just like, wow, how do we come up with something that's tacky, soft, and durable? But how do we come up with something that's, you know, got the stability uh, in, in the field right. where it's so soft, but yet it still has, you know, people's hands aren't moving around on the club when they're swinging it. So that's where the CP2 came in the, in the town, you know, came into for us. Um, and, and really, um, boy, I'll tell you, there probably hasn't been a grip. Um, and, and I feel like we've definitely had some, some home runs with some of the things that we've, the innovations and tech and performance driven products we've come out with over the last four or five years, but none to me have been as big of a home run as the CP2 um, in terms of reaching that golfer you're talking about, which is that right. aging golfer, uh, even not aging golfer, but, um, it's it's soft. Um, it comes in a wrap form, and it comes in a and we call it the pro form, which ha- doesn't have the wrap uh, uh, skivings in them. Uh, but it's 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 CP2 really meets that criteria. Um, and the jumbo with the knots got the same sort of plus four build to it, where it's that reduced taper grip. Um, it's it's amazing. Funny enough, um, I think I think it was Alex Chaika who used a CP2 jumbo. <laughs> wrap grip on his putter for a while. Uh, so it was that round style of butter grip. So, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it was, you know, I think it definitely is kind of like, Oh really? Well, maybe there's a category that's untapped for us. You know, we should, we should be looking at that. So, well, um, I'm, yeah, I'm sure you get some interesting, yeah, I'm sure you guys get some interesting feedback and, and, you know, everybody's different and, and it just goes to show, you know, we've understand now on the teaching side of thing is not everybody's the same and, you have to treat each individual and I'm sure it's difficult and challenging um, really to address um, the general market because you don't want to put, you know, products out there that just sort of do a blanket, you know, across the market. Obviously you want to have some different options and things like that because there are so many differences. Um, The last question I want to ask you, uh, Charlie, is this, is, you know, we've seen particularly uh, over the last several years, a burst of colors, designs, what have you in, in golf grips, everything from the putting grip uh, or putters uh, and, and obviously uh, our swing uh, clubs as well. Is that just something to uh, initially was done to, to really a- appeal to a, a younger generation market to get them excited about it? Um, what was the reasoning behind having such a, you know, because when I think back, I mean, I'm 55, give you an idea what generation I'm from. When I think back to some of the old grips, they were, traditionally dark color and 
so on and so forth. Now you see what's out there, and there's multicolor, dual color, and everything under the sun. What was sort of the thought process when, when that evolution, if you will, took place? Why did they come out with sort of so many different uh, colored uh, grips? Ted, you must be sitting in on some some uh, golf pride product management meetings. I mean, all the all the uh, <laughs> the questions you're asking are good ones, and, and um, I'm being serious. So uh, yeah, I don't know what type of key insights you have, but <laughs> whoever they are, uh, keep them close to the vest. Don't let them get out. Um, oh. But no, that is something for us. I think you know you're tapping on soft, and it's you know, hey, look, you've got something soft, and how soft is too soft? And um, and, I, and going back to the color comment, you know, color. You know, I think that you think of the way that you shop for clothes and the way that you shop for cars. And initially, the things that attract you to those those things are color, right? Like you either like grays or blacks right. or browns. You're attracted to those. And I think that's what you notice. And um, for us, you know, the differentiator, when we launched, uh, you know, the multi-compound in 2004, it was two, and essentially it still is, it's two materials. You have a firm upper half and a soft lower half. And for us to be able to identify that and so that you could know they're not the same material, you know, multi-compounds, right? Different compounds of rubber. Um, that was the initial right. thought process behind it. And then the colors just kind of resonated. You know, you think of different, um, you know, teams that are out there or, you know, just colors sure. that are popular, blue, red, white, black, you know, those are the colors that, um, you know, are most popular in car sales. Those are the colors that are most popular um, for us and have been in grips. Now we're looking at like, you know, the multi-compound plus four gray, which is still a two-tone, two-tone grip, um, you know, and, and we're looking, we're seeing more of those sort of colors, that matte finish. Um, you know, I look for, for color to be a huge part of what we continue to do um, going forward, um, the same way that you're seeing it in golf balls, right? And you see um, right. white and yellow golf balls. Um, and and I, I see that people are accessorizing and accenting their clubs. You see the custom club uh, builds that, that are happening and, and uh, the custom shops that are out there these days are custom fitting players. You know, everybody, you know, they're building things out, whether it's down to the ferrule, uh, you know, whether it's uh, paint fill. This is the way the consumers are really, you know, these are my, this is how they're, they're identifying their own clubs. And so for us, you know, people want to, they relate to a color, you know, uh, right now, uh, I would say that most of the accents on my bag are green, right? So if you probably pulled my grips out, right. you might see some sort of golf pride green grip on it, right? You know, maybe it's a college <laughs> color that, you know, and maybe that's, right. that's the case, right? I don't know why, but it's just, that's what I'm, I'm drawn to. So I, I think that there's definitely that out there. And um, I would look for us to keep exploring that. I feel like, um, uh, yeah, like I said, I, it sounds like you've, you've got some pretty good insights there, Tim. Well, I, rest assured, um, I have no access to any secrets that you guys may have uh, <laughs> under the, the tarp, if you will. Uh, it's just a, an educated guest, and, and I mean that sincerely. Um, but I, I'd be more than happy to, to offer any thoughts and insight into your R&D uh, department. So, um, But, you know, all kidding aside, you know, I, I think really – it speaks to the individuality of, of the golfer. I think, you know, uh, not just the colors, but the, the different types of grips. I think people now want to feel um, in, in everything, all consumer, like you, you mentioned about cars and things like that, golf balls. You know, it's really about giving them the choice and not sort of pigeonholing them into, you know, one area all the time. So I think it's good for companies like yours uh, to be coming out, not just with different products, uh, and how they feel and, and that, but also how they look. Um, 
because I don't think one size does fits all, uh, figuratively speaking. So I think it's good that you guys are, are, are coming out with, with different things. It's actually kind of exciting, you know, from, you know, from somebody that's in the golf industry to see that momentum uh, happening. And as you said, you know, people have favorite, uh, you know, sports teams maybe or something, and they have certain colors that uh, they like to support, if you will. Uh, so it's nice that you guys are addressing that as well. So um, you guys uh, do a fantastic job. I've used Golf Pride Grips um, since day one. So uh, I know they're a, a phenomenal product. Well, Charlie, I want to thank you. Uh, it's been very interesting. And um, I think you guys have got a lot of exciting things happening. Uh, is there anything new coming up for 2020 that you guys uh, are getting ready to launch or uh, that you're, or are you saving that for the, the PGA show or, or what? Definitely Ted. I, you know, I, I would be, I'd be uh, probably in a little bit of trouble if I, if I showed the cards uh, this evening <laughs> on the show, but I'll tell you what, uh, we, <laughs> um, I'll tell you, I would love to get some of the new stuff in your hands when we do launch them. So you get to experience them for yourself uh, when we, when we do come out with them next year. Um, but we, you know, I, for us, as, as always, I, I think that, you know, rest assured when we come out with something, um, you know, that it's, it's better than, than what we've had, whether it's in material performance, that it's going to last longer, right. it's going to wear better, you know, even just in bag wear, um, and that we're really focused on addressing the needs of the consumer. Um, we're, we're constantly, um, you know, trying to help make the, the game more enjoyable, you know, and ultimately, um, and I say this sincerely, like inspiring confidence um, in golfers when they pick that club up. You know, that's their first interaction with the club before they hit the shot. And we want them to walk into that shot feeling the most confident that they can. And uh, like I said, that, that's kind of a mantra. That isn't kind of a mantra. That is the mantra around our office. Uh, and we want to inspire confidence every day. So, Well, you couldn't have wrapped it up any better, uh, our segment together. So I appreciate that very much. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming now uh, in some way, shape, or form that Golf Pride will be down at the PGA show uh, late January, and if so, I'm going to be there, and I'll make sure I stop by uh, the Golf Pride booth. Um, and if not, I will uh, I'll reach out to you another way. But uh, Charlie, thank you very much for coming on Golf Talk Live this evening. It's been a great conversation. And uh, for those listeners that are out there that would like to learn more, uh, is there a website or is there somewhere that they can go uh, and maybe find out a little bit more about uh, Golf Pride? Absolutely, GolfPride.com. That has uh, probably the the most uh, informative in terms of looking for grip fitting it has uh the, the most depth in terms of all of our product families and, and helping somebody find their right the, the right grip for their game um, but you can also follow us we're constantly running consumer promotions on twitter um at golf pride grips and then also on instagram and um you know we would we we love when when consumers follow us and reach out to us and uh we're, we're doing our best to make sure that we're engaging with as many as we can and we like to feel as connected. And one of the promotions we're running right now is called the Victory Club. And um, I, I encourage any, any golfer out there that's had kind of a first this year or, you know, over the past year using mm-hmm. a golf pride grip, uh, some sort of first experience, you know, tell us about it. We want, we want to hear about it from you guys, and we'll make sure to send you a Victory Club coin. Uh, and and we, want to, we want to keep connecting with our consumers and being a part of their success. Um, so thanks, Perfect. Ted. Thank you very much for Perfect. having us. And we're, we're really lucky to be a part on, on your show tonight. Not a problem. You're welcome to come back anytime. And like I said, I'll be looking for you down at the show and, and uh, we'll have you back again uh, next year when you're ready to release uh, some of those new products. Uh, you can come back and talk about them here on the show. Thank you, Ted. We look forward to that. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Charlie. Have a great evening. You too, Ted. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
All right, that was my special guest, uh, Charlie Fisher, uh, manager of uh, channel sales and marketing for Golf Pride Grips, and uh, talking about the uh, the grip in general, and, and also about their new facility uh, out in the Pinehurst uh, area in uh, uh, out in the Carolinas. Uh, definitely go to uh, golfpride.com. Uh, you can check out uh, their website. There has all kinds of information on that. Um, but I want to thank uh, uh, again Charlie for for coming on the show this evening, and I want to give a special thanks to uh, the guys on the Coach's Corner panel, John Hughes and John Decker. Thanks again, guys, for doing a great job. Uh, again, I will be on uh, next Tuesday on the Women of Golf Show from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on the BlogTalkRadio.com network next Tuesday, and then again on Thursday evening uh, next week with another. Uh, great coach's corner to start off and then a special uh, interview guest on the uh, second half of golf talk live next thursday and then we will be off uh the following week to observe thanksgiving so thank you everybody for joining me this evening i hope you enjoyed the show uh, god bless and i will see you next time right here on golf talk live Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts. Or listen on any of the following social media platforms. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.